All Detroit has a cancer. The cancer is crime. And it must be cut out before we employ the two million workers that will breathe life into this city again. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Tell me about your plan, Mr. Moore. How long will it take? We're ready to go, sir. We've restructured the police department and placed prime candidates according to risk factor. I'm confident that we can go to prototype within 90 days. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. We get the best of both worlds. The fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you Robocop. Today is a listener request. We'll be discussing Robocop. Starring Peter Weller. What are your prime directives? Serve the public trust. Protect the innocent. Uphold the law. Nancy Allen. Oh, hello. I haven't really had a chance to introduce myself. I'm Ann Lewis. Do you have a name? Miguel Ferrer. Let me make it real clear for you. He doesn't have a name. He's got a program. He's product. Is that clear? Ronnie Cobb. You've insulted me, and you've insulted this company with that bastard creation of yours. I had a guaranteed military sale with Ed 209. Who cares if it worked or not? And Kurtwood Smith. See, I got this problem. Cops don't like me. So I don't like cops. Directed by Paul Verhoeven. Nice shooting, son. What's your name? Murphy. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. This is a metaphor for Christ. Robocop is Christ. Z is crucified, resurrected. He will walk on the water. It's Gally in Glasgow saying sorry to all our Dutch listeners. <laughs> uh, the Series 7 Sports Art by Jensen. It's Devlin in London. Bitches leave. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. We are back for Season 5 of the Rewind Movie Podcast. That's right, we've been doing seasons. It's the first I found out about it as well. <laughs> but here we are. We're back after our summer break. So before we start, uh, gentlemen, have you had a, a lovely... Lovely break away from the show. Chance to recalibrate. Chance to think, do I really want to do this again for another year? We've done all right, haven't we? I think uh, uh, we filled a bit of the time by getting horrifically drunk. Yeah, it wasn't really uh, a break. It was it was a getting extremely drunk and then recovering. Um, mm. So, yeah, it hasn't really. I, I've got my break in August, so I'm going to take it then. Gally, have you enjoyed yours? You're looking very tan. I have. I have. I went a little bit <laughs> Dr. Romano. Deep cut reference to Robocop there. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I unfortunately, um, <laughs> listeners, just a tangent, but always check the UV. <laughs> always check the UV index and never assume that a Mediterranean heritage will spare you. Yeah. No, no. Unfortunately, I, uh, I, 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 I've shedded like a snake. One million sunblock was required. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Or if you want another kind of visualization, a bit like Alan Partridge, uh, my pillow was like a flapjack. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners today's episode is a listener request and the request came in from jamie russell thank you very much jamie russell who picked robocop from 1987 jamie please forgive me but jamie <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> this is pretty cool. Give me the doll, kid. Yeah, a little <laughs> reference there. Maybe this Christmas we will do that movie. It will be fun. Maybe funner than the film. I don't know. But yes, Jamie selected Robocop. So normally in our episodes is where I'd ask you guys about your experiences. I might even talk about my own with the film. I'm going to do something slightly different. Jamie very kindly gave us the reasons why he selected Robocop. He didn't tell us why he listens to the show, which is, you know, maybe I don't want to know. But he did give us the reasons why he selected it. So I'm going to read it as if I am Jamie. But I'm not Jamie. I'm Gally. (laughs) (laughs) I was just starting secondary school in the late 80s, and I would have been 11 or 12 when I first heard and then experienced Robocop for the first time. I distinctly remember all of my friends talking with great enthusiasm about watching the film and describing it as a must-watch experience. Now, it's important to stress that this was pre-internet times, so I had no real access to any information about the film and can only remember looking at the now-iconic front cover of the VHS. I was finally able to watch the film with some friends. It was my first 18 certificate film, and my mum insisted on watching the film with us. Oof. Uh Uh-oh. I was absolutely glued to the TV from the very opening scene. Unsurprisingly, I had seen nothing even close to this previously. The violence, the swearing, which still stands up as being quite shocking for modern standards, in my opinion. It really stunned me on the first viewing. I was troubled so much that I ended up forbidding my younger brother, three years younger, from watching the film. It was as he was understandably curious about it. I remember saying to him, don't watch it. It will mess you up. I must admit that the film deeply trolled me on the first watch. I was terrified of Clarence Bodiger and Dick Jones, and I'm pretty sure that it gave me some sleepless nights at the time. However, I was fascinated by it, and I wanted to see it again. When I was a few years older, probably 15 or so, I started my VHS collection with three films from 1987. They were Predator, The Running Man, and of course, Robocop. Pick which one out of that gets dropped. That's normally a Twitter question, isn't it? Mm. I think I know which one it would be. Uh, mm. Uh, I vividly remember treasuring these tapes and watching them on endless rotation. My next experience with the film was actually when I became a teacher many years later. I remember finding out that there was a director's cut of the film and that therefore the film that blew me away all those years ago was not even full, uncut experience as I had assumed. I needed to see it. My first opportunity to do this was through saving up for the Blu-ray and buying this version in 2001. I was now able to see Robocop in all its gory glory for the first time. And of course, this was also the time where I was able to truly watch, appreciate and understand the, the level of satire running throughout. And this made adding another new dimension to my experience. I think I would say that in all of my many years watching films, I can't think of another experience that had such impact on me than Robocop. It is a film that transcends just the experience of watching it and is a cultural phenomenon of the 80s. At one stage, I was able to quote most of the dialogue of the film and I have, over the years, bought the film in many different versions and formats, just as Dick Jones would want constant (laughs) revenue in change. So there we go. So thank you very much, Jamie, for uh, a fully concise uh, reasoning behind why you picked Robocop. I mean, guys, a lot of love coming off the page there now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Fairly enough, right? I mean, 87, 
that that threefer that he's put on there that's uh that's a solid foundation perhaps the uh uh the sandwich box is already open and the sandwiches are flying all over the bus but um quite telling that it's in a, a list of three films with predator which is a film that we talk about as being a film whereby it could it could have been an also ran it could have been a fun late night romp it was elevated by an extraordinary amount of craft, probably more than something like that really needed mm. to become something that's kind of like both inventing a genre and transcending the genre at the same time. But not a lot of subtext in something like Predator. I mean, you could argue that it means something deeper than, than we were reading into it slightly, weren't we? But this mm. one that we're talking about today has many levels. Indeed, yes. indeed. Like an onion. Peel the onion. Exactly. And we will get to the core of this today. I'm so glad you brought up the onion core. You seem very fascinated by what happens in the middle of an onion these days, and I'm excited to find out what that is. What about you guys then? Devlin, start with you. Uh, first experiences with Robocop? Unfortunately, don't remember the very first time I saw Robocop, but I do remember it being one of the films that you have to see when you're a kid because um, it's violent. I probably saw it far too young. I probably saw it uh, before secondary school, I would think. Yet another film whereby I think the sequel was probably first. Mm. Um, uh, more accessible. Um, still violent, still grim, but um, slightly uh, uh, more palatable, I would say. Um, and I've seen the second one more than I've seen the first um probably when i was younger um the the robocop one i kind of i will watch it sporadically and i i you know i really get into it but it's a uh it's a little bit of a kind of it's not a a, a comfort watch it's not one of those films that i can kind of go back to and watch quite a lot i think that it's probably it's more of a kind of it's time to watch robocop again but there will be gulfs between viewings that's interesting I even get a sense from the fact you're not able to pinpoint the exact moment, whereas we've done other films around this time where mm. you, Devil in particular, have been like, no, I remember it. I'm also just thinking, yeah. like, you clearly remembered Predator 2, like, very vividly. So it's kind of strange that Robocop, for all of its... uh you know, for all of its kind of reputation. It kind of drifted into my orbit. I think I was aware of Robocop as a cultural phenomenon because by the time, of course, I got uh, into it, it was, well, I'm sure speak about later, the franchising and the neutering of Robocop yes. that uh, the, the Robocop went within a few short years from being a hyper-violent, satirical masterpiece about corporate America to a literal Saturday morning kids cartoon show. What about you, Matt? Uh, I had a friend, Dave Smith, who I've mentioned on previous podcasts. Him and his brothers acted out some of the popular films of our youth. Brilliant that Dave's back. Dave's returning. <laughs> what a pivot. Schindler's List to Robocop. I mean, that's something else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, they did not act out um, Robocop, but there's another little story attached to Dave here. His brother, Steve, was an artist and we used to play with Action Force figures a lot. G.I. Joe's to our American friends. Not the big action man ones, the little... You couldn't take the trousers off those, if I remember. <laughs> as hard as I tried. Action. As hard as I tried, <laughs> yeah. Gally. But yeah. the... the uh, <laughs> But they, they were, their pelvises would break, though. Uh, they, had, they had, like, little mm. elastic bands inside, and once that snapped, you were screwed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there was a character that resembled Robocop. Can't remember the official name, but Dave's brother, Steve, painted him, spray-painted him silver to look like Robocop. 
and from that point on he was Murphy or Robocop and whoever played as that character was therefore unkillable so it was very infuriating to uh, to not be Robocop in our uh, action force games um he was the winner every time so um I I saw this one too young uh, we had a video shop called Clearview uh, that I've mentioned. You'd look at the toasters and then look at Crocodile Dundee, or there would be uh, blenders, and uh, you could you could rent whichever police academy was out at that time. Uh, it was that was kind of a bizarre video shop. Uh, so I remember. Mm. I, I also have a, I have a Robocop two connection. I remember setting uh, the video to record Barry Norman uh, film ninety. It'll have been. Nice. Um, and there was a clip of, uh, from Robocop 2 with uh, a scientist hiding in a, in a van. And, uh, it was been blown up by a, a, a team of like, um, a SWAT team, I think. And then it got, we went straight into the sequence where Robocop is, is hanging onto like an armored ice cream truck driven by yeah. Tom Noonan, the, the, uh, the guy that plays Kane in that movie. And mm-hmm. that was, that was amazing to me, uh, but I'd already seen Robocop by that point. So I'll have been about eight when that came out. So I definitely saw this one Shit. before I should have, mm-hmm. uh, not in its director's cut form, which came later. Uh, and, uh, I have one other experience with it, which was, uh, I watched it with my dad on sky movies before I came to Korea. And I was very surprised that we got through the entire film together because <laughs> Robocop is not my dad's style at all but i think he responded to the satire and uh it was more intelligent than it appeared to be and he stuck with it beginning to end and uh particularly enjoyed the line about uh the, the guy demanding uh, a recount and demanding a fast car with cruise control um, <laughs> so he, he he enjoyed that element of it and recently i, I got hold of the arrow um blu-ray which which really hooked me back into it again so it's it's always been there it's a uh, it's a film I've returned to a lot, and I I agree with you, Devlin. It it doesn't it's not quite a comfort watch, but I return to it. It's time to watch Robocop again, and I just stick it on. I think I went three, two, one. Genuinely, I think I watched Robocop three first. You started with the jetpack is... with no Nancy Allen, no yeah, it... Peter Weller. Well, no, Nancy Allen's in it, but she gets gunned down in five minutes. Um... Oh, they kill her off in three. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I believe, Jeez. I believe Nancy was like, I'm, I'm really done with this. The Sigourney syndrome. Yeah. Take so she was out. like, I'll be, I'll be in it, but you need to kill me immediately. <laughs> um, which is what happened. I remember the girl from Andre, if everyone remembers that little free Willy ripoff, uh, being in Robocop 3. <laughs> um, she's also in Napoleon Jesus Dynamite, Christ. the one who does the, um, does the hair, you know, styling photos. Oh, is that Waterworld yeah. girl? Yeah, what will girl? Yeah, I don't know why I went Andre. That is a deep cut. Yeah, you went Sorry, obscure, this, this. but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, Angola, yeah, 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 Angola. Well, girl from Andre. Um, so yeah, I um, I I watched three, two, one. Yeah, and I do think that's one of the reasons why I don't. Not that RoboCop doesn't uh, have a place in my heart that's special, but it doesn't. It's strange that you're right, both of you. I don't revisit this one. So watching this, when, when Jamie picked it, I was like, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Why? We, we, we've never even discussed doing Robocop on this show. That's not to say that we're not fans. We'll find out, won't we? But, um, yeah, strange how it's not like a blind spot. It's more just, oh, it's, right, it's Robocop. It's a thing. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Okay. Um, so I'm interested to find out, but I have, I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting it. 
sandwiches. Um, but I did show this one to Danielle, who first time watched last night. And the opening title, she was like, oh, God. She literally groaned. She went, ugh. And then it went straight into a wonderful presentation of news. Straight, And you know when I knew that the film had her? The next advert, the Yamaha heart. She was like, she actually yeah. laughed uh, at the, and remember, we care. There's there's a tremendous bluntness both to the start and the end of this film. And that that cold open is like it bangs that title it puts it in a big chunky kind of it looks like um like something that uh i don't know like uh charles band would put out in the 80s like you know just these really blunt fun like robot jocks or something but it's like, like a metallic you know. clunky there it is it's in your face yeah. right from the outset the comparison is always the terminator because it's orion pictures god bless orion um who we love um but they made the terminator so you could easily if you're being lazy go Oh, I see what's happened here. The Terminator was mm-hmm. successful, so let's make another yeah. cyborgy type of movie. But the Terminator's got this like, you know, it's slow reveal, the music, the the backstory. RoboCop, it's just, mm-hmm. and yeah. you are in. That that was put in um, at the request of, I want to say John, is it John Davidson? Um, but it, producer. Yeah, I th- I'm not sure if it definitely was him, but it wasn't Verhoeven. That was a shot that was added uh, at his, you know, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that he conceived of. Uh, that was an, mm. it was insisted that that shot went in, but I, I quite enjoy it. I don't find it tacky actually. I, I find that just, it's just in your face. It may, maybe some people yeah. would object, but it's just there. You could argue, Matt, if you did something like that. Now we're going to talk about the film. The film's been very, very successful and, and critically lauded, but you would argue that that's like a way of saying, listen, just get past the title real quick. Mm. Um, we don't want to, mm. we don't want to linger on it. Uh, let's just get straight into the well, movie. We haven't discussed this and it's amazing to me, like the, um, opening titles. Are you a fan of the opening titles or do you just like to go straight in? I'm, I'm someone that enjoys going straight in. And if there is an opening title sequence, I want the director to elevate it somehow. Like someone like Fincher seems to be obsessed with elevating title sequences, seven being a, a, a terrific mm. example of it. Mm. But just having la- lazily putting uh, names of the cast and crew at the bottom of a scene as it's going on, I hate that because it tells you that what's happening on screen is not important. If we're, put- if we're putting the names of people on at, at the same time, it doesn't mm. matter what you're looking at. It doesn't matter what you're listening to because they're just chucking things in. But if you make a meal of your opening titles, if you go Saul Bass yeah. or if you go James Bond, you can really kind of uh, make it a, a really uh, interesting part of the film itself as opposed to a side, you know, something you just chuck away. But yeah, without that big kind of like, this is a recognizable like action movie thing of like the title's exciting. Like, mm-hmm. uh, um, without that, if you, if you do this kind of slow burn reveal, yeah, maybe you don't keep people on side for long enough. Mm. I think, you know, I think it's good. I think it's, um, uh, Terminator was going for something different, which was they wanted to be a kind of sleek, stealthy, kind of mysterious thing. And I think this wants to be a bit more of a blunt force object that is smuggling smarter ideas in. So before we, uh, before we get into our discussion, there is no Patrick, and I am no substitute. So I'm just going to read out the Wikipedia plot summary for RoboCop. But listen, if you listen to this episode, you know the story. So here we go. In a violent near-apocalyptic Detroit, 
evil corporation, Omni Consumer Products, wins a contract from the city government to privatise the police force. To test their crime-eradicating cyborgs, the company leads street cop Alex Murphy, played by Peter Weller, into an armed confrontation with crime lord Bonniger, Kurtwood Smith, so they can use his body to support their untested Robocop prototype. But when Robocop learns of the company's nefarious plans, he turns on his masters. Mm. I would say that that's um, not quite the plot. That's why we we value Patrick's uh, contributions here. Strange synopsis. I, I won't. I'll say this, listeners. Not not our best work. Is it not our best work because we did no work? We did no work. <laughs> no. So we all know the story of RoboCop. Can we talk straight away about? We've already kind of mentioned it in the titles, but silly name because it is is a bit silly. Uh, silly name. No discernible star. So so my question to you guys is, why does why does this movie transcend? A silly title, no star, and he's in. He's a RoboCop. Is this the machine version of Predator, like you were saying, Devlin? Well, I don't know. I mean, how successful was it when it was released? Clearly successful enough to uh, to to spin off uh, a franchise that they were still milking as of the kind of early two thousands, from what I've seen. That the TV shows and they ran, they ran this thing into the ground. Like they had a TV series. And then I think either they made TV movies as well, or they would edit episodes together to create like films that they could sell on the foreign market. So uh, clearly, I mean, it had a big cultural footprint. Well, do you want to know how much it made? So, and yes. well, I'll, I'll do the, so this again, according to Wikipedia, so probably there or thereabouts, um, but maybe not a hundred percent accurate. Budget of 13.7 million, which feels too mm-hmm. specific to not be right. Uh, mm. box office of 53.4. Okay. So that's a, that's a good return. Eight, it's a good 80s return, isn't it? Solid 80s, 80s number that is. That's a good one. Yeah. And if you add inflation and then take mm. away the cost of living, you've still made money. But then, and then, you know, you're, you're also right in the middle of the, uh, in in America, you'd have people watching this on like HBO or whatever, and over here, you would have people renting the video, and it would become a, a perennial. So it has legs. Obviously, we have director, we have writers, but is it mm. the is it the satirical elements and the skewering of that? I wouldn't even say it's like an eighties thing. So this is eighty seven, and I've read a lot about it. You know, taking shots at the Reagan era, but it feels like it's more like it's taking shots at American culture as a whole i think the acceler the acceleration though the 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 idea of like in the 80s you had um reagan and thatcher at the same time you have your reaganomics of your trickle down kind of sell everything off everything being private and over here you had thatcher saying that there's no such thing as society the two of them were very closely linked and you basically had the idea of like public life or public services or anything that was, you know, for the benefit of a society and not for profit was essentially being denigrated to the point of uselessness and being replaced by a a money-making corporate version thereof, privatization of literally everything. So I do think that it's like 87 is is quite an interesting time to set something like this. It's remained relevant just because that continues to be the predominant economic and political message uh, that we live in. But um, probably I don't think it would make sense in the in the 70s, you know. 
Well, because one of the questions I asked in my notes, and I, I messaged you yesterday, I think, I said, you know, modern films now, they get a little bit hammered if they are discussing issues of the time. So I'm thinking about like, mm. gender identity and social politics and progressive thinking. Robocop feels like the 80s version of that, but it is lauded and loved. Is there just something like there's a part of us as an audience that we like almost laughing at ourselves, but it's we're, we're one step removed because I, I think of the movie as like, well, it's science fiction. So you ask the question, well, is science fiction predicting the future, reflecting the past, or is it saying something about the t- the era in which it is made? I think Robocop's all three. And I think that's probably why it kind of transcends that barrier of, oh, this feels like, you know, in a year's time, this is going to be well out of date. Um, I, I think not just the, the reflection of the times that it's in, like the, the, the birth and the, the now dominance of this kind of corporate, kind of sleazy corporate kind of capitalist vultures. But also it was made at a time whereby you could still just about get away with making points like this in a major film and it not be completely uh, duplicitous of you. Because like when you were saying that films do this now, the reason they get hammered for it is it's disingenuous as fuck because you know mm. that it had to go through layers of corporate thinking. So it's like whatever message you want to smuggle in means that by the time it reaches an audience, it has been filtered through so many kind of layers of you, you've neutered everything to the point that it becomes, this is now an acceptable protest and a protest should never be acceptable. It should always be kind of a bit unpleasant and a bit troubling. Well, it was intelligent. It, it's underpinned by Steve Miner, who struck me as there's a, there's a feature on the, on the DVD. He's an incredibly intelligent writer with a perspective and a lot of forethought but also this agenda to make something smart and violent and to create something that says, you know, that, that imparts his feelings about America. You mentioned Reaganization, uh, privatization of police and hospitals, jails and businesses. The, there was a bit of trivia that the building, uh, of, of the military industrial complex and that there's even a character, uh, called McNamara based on Robert McNamara. And, uh, right. th- there's, th- there's some just, Great stuff going on. I think it's it's really between Minor and uh, Newmeyer, who mm. who were the the key to sort of getting it getting it going. Uh, Newmeyer was on Blade Runner. Uh, he was on the Blade Runner set, um, and he had this idea about corporate executives killing each other, and then they blended it with a futuristic robot idea. And uh, Ed, Ed Newmeyer kind of is is omnipresent here he's sort of you know he's he had a say in things he was approving uh approving props he was uh rewriting scenes on the fly uh there's a scene with from robocop's perspective where the um uh it's like a the happy birthday party bit where the the girl kisses the the lens and smudges her lipstick on it that was all written just in an afternoon and that all came from from him and he was sort of overseeing a lot of things so i think those those two guys are are the the intelligence that was underpinning it and then when verhoven came in it took a while i think his wife had to convince him to actually you know reread it and say there's actually something that you could do with this you could actually put yourself into this but I, I think uh, Newmeyer and, and Miner were the, the key, really, to getting it, getting it going and, and putting that intelligence in at, at, the, at the ground floor. 
it feels a bit punk rock. It's rebellious, isn't it? Definitely. Before maybe punk rock became co-opted. And, and the thing is, it's not angry. I don't think it's like an angry movie that's like, oh, boo hiss. It's a cautionary tale. But the element of hope is, is what I like. I, we should really do it later. But the, the final line of the movie, there's a lot of hope in there. The, there's, no matter how hard they try to turn us into these machines and, and Detroit and, and the idea that cars were built in Detroit um, by human hands and then eventually replaced by, by the machines, the, the probably not paranoia of that, the reality of that, but there's, there's always that, that the humanity cannot be extinguished. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons that it's lasted. And that was a huge moment for, for audiences. Uh, they said that, on the test screenings and when it was finally released, people freaked out at the end when he said Murphy, that, that it's one of the greatest closing, closing lines. That's pleasing to hear because one of the things I also thought is that I really enjoyed the fact that this film did not hold my hand. Like everything is shown and we, we, we're, we're told everything about this world through, you know, wonderful snippets of news and adverts and whatnot. But I never feel like I'm being lectured to. Nor am I, mm. nor is the point ever overemphasized to the point where I'm like, oh man, I, I get it. Okay. I get it. They're sneaking it in like a blue Peter used to sneak in the education. And I think one of the other reasons why certain, um, modern messaging in modern movies gets a bit of a hammer in it is, is because it's so clunky. Well, once you detect that there's virtue signaling going on, you switch off, don't you? Because you feel preached to. Well, it's, it's that they're not smart enough to bake it into the text of what they're doing. It's like, uh, I liked the idea of, of, of Newmeyer and Michael Minor. They seem to be from slightly different generations. I think Michael Minor was quite a bit older than Ed Newmeyer. Is it Michael or Steve? Uh, this one's Michael Miner. Steve Miner's the, um, the Friday the 13th guy. Oh, that's right. Steve Miner's the terrible director. Sorry, Steve. Uh, uh, the Halloween H2O. Yeah. Creator thereof. Um, uh, Ed Newmeyer was a, he was, um, like a really young executive, right? He was a script writer who, a uh, script reader rather, who became an executive and he was very, very, very young when he became an executive. And his generation was probably just like post punk. He was probably still in his twenties in the early eighties. Michael Miner was a little older. I think he was a veteran of the kind of late sixties cultural mm. revolution. So yeah. his ideals were far more, um, like conservative like, Devlin. No, no, he's a big way. drug guy. No, he's, uh, he was like a, you know, he was like full sixties kind of, um, libertinistic but very much of a kind of a, a collective like old school kind of socialist thinking i think which i respond to i also really liked him in that interview i thought he came across as extremely eloquent and that he understood all of the um sacrifices and all of the he understood the the, the game a little better i think and instead of like railing against this is what they won't let me do, I can't believe you know they'll they'll neuter this or they'll ruin this. It's like, well, be smarter than them. Just put just bury it further into the text or or um, show them something um, that show them something that the chuds will cheer for, and then see whether you can implant something in their brain while they're cheering for the horrible violence. Like, like can can you um like can you change minds? Like if somebody's going to see this from the, from the, the, the surface level perspective of uh, maybe this is slightly different, I guess, to Starship Troopers, right? Which is that Starship Troopers, uh, just flat out portrays a fascistic society winning and dares you to be dumb enough to cheer for it. Which as a teenager, I absolutely was. <laughs> 
you you can't ignore the subtext here like it's it's not just the subtext it's mm. it's in the text you know clearly but again as an eight-year-old you don't see any of that but uh, also uh, as a note on how how this has aged um quite beautifully the they talked about uh i think it was ed newmeyer who'd, who'd never read any joseph campbell but when he eventually did all of those archetypes are actually present mm. in in robocop without him even trying and then if you add to it the robo christ metaphor of of you know all the stuff verhoven was doing he is christ he's american jesus <laughs> the uh the arguable stigmata of blowing the hands off you know which is a bit mm. of a stretch the uh robocop walking on water at the end yeah. is another one um it's kind of an inflammatory and, and provocative thing he was trying to do and uh but you can you can argue that those ideas are are baked in and uh, that's what makes it um, long lasting. There was also uh, the scene, one of my favorite scenes, it's a really sad scene where Murphy goes back to his house uh, or Robocop mm. goes back to, to, to Murphy's house. And uh, it's the paradise lost kind of aspect yes. they're, they're drawing on a lot of influences that are ever everlasting. It's a key scene that one, Matt, because it also fed into uh, another aspect that I really enjoy about the movie obviously we're seeing like the erosion of a society a, a people every single scene is centered around money trumping humanity the, what's the most popular tv show on on television i'd buy that for a dollar benny hill with with boobs and baking and stuff. all centered around money and that yeah. scene it works in twofold because um i remember well no i remember i've seen i've read like little criticisms of it saying well you know why would they if they were selling a house leave like dead flowers and the mm. photo the now, broken best you, father uh, mug yeah, yeah. <laughs> now if you now if you're if you're uh, a cinema sins type then that would be like why would you do that but it works on a story level and a thematic level because what's the thing that's showing him around the house it's not a human is it it's yeah. automated yeah. so to, to my mind it just it speaks to the idea that they are there's a disconnect between services that would normally be conducted by humans yeah. with a human mm. element or a you know compassion uh personality and it's replaced by this kind of smiling cold cynical computer i would also say that the cinema sins types have not tried to go for a flat viewing in central london because the idea that a broken mug wouldn't be there fuck that they'll try and charge you two grand a month for something that has a lit i once went to view a flat there was a literal shit in it they hadn't even flushed my favorite example of what you just said gally was when um uh, miguel ferrer we're seeing from murphy's perspective before robocop has been revealed and he's in that kind of lab and they're talking about removing the arm. I, th I thought we said full prosthesis. That is one of the, it's very on the nose, but that's valuing money over, over humanity. He's on. What's the story? We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay? Jesus, Morton. Can, can you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. We're going to blank his memory anyway. Well, I think we should lose the arm. What, what do you think, Johnson? Well, he signed the release forms when he joined the force. He's legally dead. We can do pretty much what we want to. Lose the arm. Shut him down. Prep him for surgery. But the cops hate OCP as well. That kind of comes across that the cops aren't aren't keen on on what's going on there. Yeah. 
yeah, they say that they're running it into, which is, I mean, that's, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's privatization, if talk, baby. <laughs> if you're talking topical, I mean, you know, you've got, uh, anytime you're trying to harness a profit off something, which is a public service, it means that the, the level of service goes down. It just naturally mm. does because you are trying to take an amount of money out of something that were there no level of profiteering mm. would not be there. All the money would be there within the, the the budget for the thing so it's it's interesting that they it is interesting how much emphasis is put on like class and strikes and like workers versus uh corporate management and stuff the idea that um a kind of a corporatist government kind of conjoined corporate government overseer harnesses the violent behavior of some of the worst people in society to mm-hmm. achieve what they want and right now we're in the middle of the January 6th hearings whereby you have a corporate president who literally whipped up like right-wing fanatics with guns and sent them to essentially kill his political enemies. Mm. And to think like, if you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, like thematic relevance. I, I was watching it last night. The guy, you know, who's... He's like, I want to recount, and it, no matter what the result is, I want my job. I want my old job back. I was like, wow, this could not be. <laughs> I want anymore. my old job back. Like, yeah, and a, and a, and a, was it a, a very fast car that gets really shitty gas mileage? As I say, a cautionary tale that has unfortunately becoming quite real. <laughs> mm-hmm. For me, the caution is commerce being an extension of violence by other means. So, like OCP, when the old man gives the speech and. God bless Bob Morton. Uh, loves a clap. <laughs> Privatization of the police force is not about dispensing justice or upholding mm. the law, is it? It's about securing an industrial security contract for Delta mm. City. Uh, and, and yeah. that, and then we, we hear through a conversation between Dick Jones and, uh, and Clarence. It's the construction workers. The cycle yeah. continues. Your company built a fucking thing. Now I gotta deal with it. I don't have time for this bullshit. Suit yourself, Clarence. But Delta City begins construction in two months. That's two million workers living in trailers. That means drugs, gambling, prostitution. Virgin territory for the man who knows how to open up new markets. One man could control it all, Clarence. Well, I guess we're going to be friends after all. Richard. Gally, you always, you were talking about that you really, um, appreciated the phrase that I think it's Ed Newmeyer who says it, where he says the movie is fascism for liberals or is it Michael Minor? It's one of the, um, interviews with, with one of the writers. No, it was, uh, no, it was the producer. It was John Davidson. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, oh, so is John Davidson okay. said that, you know, yeah. Robo, you know, he said like, you know, the old elevator pitch. What is Robocop? It's fascism for liberals. Cause there's, there's definitely something to be said in the, at the big rousing cheering ending where uh, Dick Jones gets what's coming to him. Mm. When you think about it though, is Robocop, AKA Murphy, as he has now reclaimed his identity, but he has still saved the head of a horrific corporate oppressive. Like Dick Jones was a bad executive, but Dick Jones was a bad executive in a company which also has horrible intent he keeps a a, a, a an evil organization mm. in it's not like he it's not like he then goes and leads the police strike no and and he won't i don't think he will yeah 
Of course, because he is... Um, He's a cop who's trying to, you know, uphold the law. And I think that that is also an interesting take on this, which is like, you know, and also becomes more relevant the, the, the more we go. It's like the idea of cops in media is often that they are represented as overall a force for good. They represent a better part of society. And that is a an image which is eroding very 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 it's not even bad apples anymore it's it's institutional uh, you know it's wider than i think yeah i think certainly michael minor more so than but both of them together in the script i think michael minor probably would have pushed like this guy's like a 60s radical i'm sure he fucking hates cops (laughs) I, i think it's been set up it's a problem if you do pull the thread of what happens to murphy next because, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be good. There's nothing really good that can come out of after the, that, these credits roll. Where does that character go? This is the absolute final point. We need to see what's going on there. Mm. Well, should we talk about that um, that kind of fascism for liberal liberals idea? But in the context of an outsider's perspective, so this entire world that's being created. D- did you not feel like the outset could have been like the, the new stuff? It could have been Kent Brockman. It the satire is very similar. There was a note on um, the righteousness of the violence they talked about in the 80s. They referenced some of the Stallone stuff. Uh, the violence in some of those films making them feel uncomfortable. And here, the violence was... The level of the violence was brought to an absurd level and the gore is so thick that it actually does a mm. different thing to an audience. And it makes a lot of... Not everyone, but it will make a lot of people laugh. It becomes more slapstick. Um, so that was another thing they attempted to do. Um, it's not quite the satirical angle, but the level of the violence. But I think this is where Verhoeven is, is kind of key as an outsider with his perspective. He's not an American. He's a mm. Dutchman, uh, who has got a PhD in mathematics and physics. So he's one of those Hollywood directors that's got quite a strange background. Mm-hmm. And he's, he, he's also, you know, for those of you that don't know, he's written a book about Jesus. So he's got, yeah. you know, obsessed with the Nazis, uh, and, and yeah. Nazi Germany. Absolutely. He's bringing that, you know, we discussed him, uh, slightly on basic instinct, but more in the, in the kind of the context of kind of sex and your European or Eurovision version of sex. I wrote down like the difference between a European filmmaker and an American Hollywood director is, is that kind of snobby idea that Europeans make films, namely art, and uh, <laughs> Americans make mass media products, you know, a la Robocop. When you yeah. mesh them together, I think you get, you get this movie. Cause like his perspective is everything's cranked up, but it kind of feels quite on point. But the violence in particular, you know, you said eventually you find it funny. It's strange when I was watching it last night, like especially the, you know, quote unquote crucifixion of Murphy. To me, that's joking the joke. And then you're there for so long that I started to question, like, I'm I'm not really enjoying this. Like this isn't, yeah. And and it's meant to be that, but, but the fact that people, you know, and then this isn't, uh, you know, Jamie mentioned like in all its gory glory, I think, you know, you could absolutely watch this and be like, oh, they don't make films like this anymore where like squibs are going off. And, but I don't think Verhoeven's doing that to, to make you go, it's yeah, not every scene. you're right. I mean, no, it's not a, every scene. A, yeah. Paul McCrane, um, dissolving and getting hit by a car is a slapstick, gory laugh, but the, the mm. murder and the torture and murder and that prolonged 
sequence with Murphy is disturbing. So you can't, I don't think you can tar it all with the same brush. Absolutely. I mean, it, obviously it works on multiple levels. It makes us absolutely hate Clarence, Bader, uh, Clarence Bodiger and the gang, you know, and how cruel and callous they are. But it also, yeah, it makes you question, like for me, I was like, well, yeah, I started questioning like what, you know, can I, I go back and cheer the, the, you know, Mr. Kenny getting shut up, but it's the same thing. It's just that because we've spent a little bit of time with Murphy and we also know where his fate's going to go. How, how, I mean, it's a, it's a great balancing act to make one thing hilarious when Ed 209, uh, malfunctions and shoots, you know, life in the big city, I'm afraid, Mr. Kenny, um, yeah. versus Murphy getting, you know, properly gunned down. When I see that steel mill from out to that first exterior of the steel mill, I start to feel a bit queasy because I know what's coming. I, I did, I did see it too young and, and it's, uh, it's a nasty scene. It really is. He, he was known for this stuff. I think flesh and blood was a, another film um, that Verhoeven did. And uh, he, he's someone who wants it to be bigger and more. And uh, it, if you look at the director's cut, I think one of, there's a couple of changes, but there's the Rob Bottin puppet. Uh, it's very disturbing because he wanted to see the, the agony from one angle and then to move the camera around and blow the back of the head out all in one shot. And of course, you can't really put a squib on an actor to, to get that exact thing. So they did it on a, on a puppet. And it's, uh, that's only in the director's cut and they, they trimmed it right back, but he was, he's making that, you know, e- equivalent to the, to the Christ, uh, you know, the crucifixion. And, uh, he, he had to make that brutal. He had to, I mean, look at what Mel Gibson did with, uh, the, the passion and all, all, all that stuff. The, the, the crux of that is making that intolerable because that's the sacrifice of, of, of that character. And, and, uh, so I think that's why he prolonged it so much but i'm mm. certainly not laughing there no, you're right well i in the interview that i saw with him talking about uh depiction of violence uh, and in particular guns he was saying that it was about consequence he wanted the audience to understand that for every every time a gun is shot and a bullet flies through the air there will be a consequence and he wanted the audience to feel that and again that feels like kind of counter programming you know we don't go to the movies to get bummed out by an action movie it felt almost like a gang rape too it, it's there's a humiliation to it where he's staggering around and the, the way the guns are unloaded and you could read a whole bunch of stuff in there but it's particularly with with the female character um uh in, in the background too with nancy allen because you, you're kind of scared what's going to happen to her so there's a strange it's a strange thing that it feels really mean spirited, but without that, you don't you don't have the weight necessary to to get him to the next stage when he becomes Robocop. Because as a as a, a protagonist, a Robocop is you know it's an incredible design. Obviously, we'll probably get into that a little more, like that how tremendous that suit is. But it's still it's a mouth in a prop, and he's having to walk around in a way that makes him seem uh, uh, in inhuman. And so you spend a lot of the film with a protagonist that is by design kind of not easy to relate to. So you have to create these little points of empathy. And when you do, you have to make sure that you crank them up. So the death has to be so horrific because you need to carry that empathy through. The scene in the uh, burnt out, his, his old house, has to be that kind of depressing because you need to be spiked with like, you know, you need to be spiked with these human moments in a film that could have become quite distancing. The payoff too of, of making Clarence despicable 
as well. We have we have to do that. And also, as he's picking off each of the gang members, we have to, you know, they're the bad guys. We have to make them vilified. It's it's interesting as well. You know, we're talking about when Murphy gets shot down in his human form. Mm. But I, I in a in a very strange way, I felt the same way when he was getting gunned down the RoboCop suit by the police. And and this is testament to Peter Weller. I think his performance in this is great because he manages to emote through movement yeah. when he's crawling on one arm and he's getting shot and you've got all the the headlights of the police i mean not only am i fe- feeling like robocop might be done here but i'm also thinking about the human behind all that stuff and i think there's yeah. a shot of his eye it's, you know it's a bit of, mm. it's a bit steven spielberg warhorse um for those of you that know what i'm talking about there's a great shot of his eye when ed 209's taking him out later yeah. And there's, there's a crack, there's a cracked part there and you see the humanity behind the, uh, the, the mask. How, how did you feel about like, uh, the alternate casting ideas? There was, there was rumors of Schwarzenegger at the time, mm. but they said that if it, you know, Weller works because he was so skinny and he had, uh, I think they said good lips and a good mouth, uh, and a good, a good jawline. He looks great in the suit, but they said if they put Arnie in that suit, he would have looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Or the, um, uh, the Michelin man, someone yeah. said. Michelin man uh, for the UK, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, there's a, there's a real like balance to be struck in terms of like cutting an imposing silhouette versus looking fucking stupid. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, the, the, the suit design, um, being as kind of sleek as it is. Did you guys see the, um, uh, uh, there was, I think some of a part of a making of documentary that talked about, um, they went through a bunch of, they cycled through so many different ideas and they scrapped them and, uh, nobody could really agree on a design until, uh, a concept artist pulled out a book by Hajime Soriyama. Right. Of mm-hmm. sexy robots. Yeah. Sexy Japanese robots. And I love that because I, I thought that that was something that this era of filmmaking was fantastic at, which is understanding that other artists in other mediums have already done amazing work and you can incorporate it. Much like deciding to base the alien world on Giga, Giga was already an artist who'd already created this wonderful aesthetic. And it was like, well, why not we just adapt something that's already there? We're all sitting here with our pencils. Like, so this, um, you know, the, 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 the sleekness and the, um, kind of, kind of fetishization of the mm. Soriyama stuff really works with this. And that, that idea, Devlin, speaks to the, you know, the globalization of it all, because now everything is, is, you know, everything's online. You know, if you wanted to find some deep cut artist who's doing incredible work, you know, you'd likely be able to just find it. But the idea mm-hmm. of in, you know, pre internet, pre massive globalization, you bring these kind of images to an audience. I mean, obviously, Robocop looks like a hybrid of kind of Judge Dredd as well. There's a Judge Dredd element. There's also the, the wonderful Fritz Lang creation from 1922, Metropolis, she, it, humanoid that, you know, you can see the elements where they've kind of taken bits and then you take those bits and you create something new out of it. And it's, it is really, truly iconic. Like I don't, th- watching it again last night, I just, I don't question the Robocop suit. Robo, yeah. Robo, I said Robocock. Whoops. Sorry. Uh, the, I don't, I don't question the, the Robocop suits. <laughs> All right. How'd you make sorry, Alan? Jerking off over robots. Because we said sexy robots. It's our fault. I, I think one of the keys, uh, one interesting thing you just said though is that, uh, Predator wasn't designed 
by a Giga or it didn't come from this. Is it Soriyama? Um, it didn't come from mm. a place like that. And they, they really fucked up the first design. It's really lucky that they got a second bite at that. And the Stan Winston studio via Jim Cameron, arguably with his mandibles, got that, mm, that yeah. second design in. It's so strong. But imagine if they didn't come up with anything, they would have been completely screwed. The, the other reason I think this one works is the slow reveal. We've talked about onions, peeling the onion. Oh yeah. The core. Um, yeah. Get to the core. Uh, this one's done really cleverly and it was at the behest of, uh, uh, Rob Bottin, who was, uh, I, th- I think your director has to work with the special effects, uh, team really closely and not just say, I want a shot like this. We'll say what shot works to show off this design in the best way. And I think we see things like, uh, the arm is one of the early things. It squeezes Miguel Ferrer's hand, uh, and and that that shows sort of the might of it with and just showing a part of the body. It's capable of crushing every bone in your hand. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got uh, when he stands up and starts walking. We don't show him immediately. We see him on a little monitor. Little monitor, isn't it? Yeah, it's very clever. Then so he's yeah. still got this mystique. It's the slow peel, and then you've got the frosted glass as he's walking behind that in the precinct, and the other officers hear him coming and sort of see this image behind the glass and even in the next scene it's through the gauze of the cage as the camera's tracking around so we have this desire to to see him it's not until he's practicing his targeting and the voice stress and the recording capabilities that we actually see him in perfect clarity matt isn't it interesting though so you've got this robocop you know you're propping him up this super strong and they Mm. do this with all the robots in this movie and then they kind of undercut it with treating him like a baby. He's in a little seat. Isn't it he gross, that baby, baby food? food? Yeah. No, but, but I think, again, I think that's super, that's just really, really smart. I just don't think you'd do that. Mm. Not that you wouldn't do that now, but your instincts would be, no, 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 we, he's our hero and he's Robocop. So he needs to yeah. be super strong in every, and obviously we get the, the, you know, the rule of three, show and do, you know, fight crime three times. That's all we need to see. Don't need to see him prowling the streets for the whole movie. How boring would that be? But the idea that then the next time we see him, he's caged up in a seat and we, we're slightly undercutting Robocop. You know, tastes like, tastes like baby food. They also, <laughs> they also do it with Ed 209 when he can't get down the stairs and he has that Ed 209 has a tantrum and his legs are just flailing yeah. about. <laughs> I'd, I'd wondered if the baby food had anything to do with the later scene where him and Lewis are doing, fixing the targeting. And he's destroying mm. the the baby food. I think there was something on the Verhoeven commentary where they talked about the symbolism of him, because there's some very specific close-ups of the baby's faces on those uh, on on the baby food, and it's him and Lewis together, and it's not sexual, but she is, you know, guiding him, and uh, mm. it's, it could be interpreted as a love scene, but also this idea that he has basically been castrated now. His family's disappeared. He's this tragic character who can never have children. And he's also vengeful and bitter in that moment. Although his face doesn't really show it. He's kind of, he's kind of blank in that third act Mm. face, face reveal. But you can tell he has that, that bitterness and the destruction of those Mm. three or four baby food glasses could, could have a deeper meaning. What are you doing? targeting system is a little messed up. Can I help you? Aim for me.
Are you locked in now? Yes. A little more to the left. Here. That's dead on. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you, you're hitting up on as well. The key to the success of the movie is if this film was just pure satire the whole way through, you know, I think it could maybe get tiresome. You know, they sprinkle it in just enough. Mm-hmm. But without that tragedy underpinning it, it, it absolutely. It it's the human mm. element that, that keeps you keeps the ride going it's his journey from yeah. you know discompassionate robot that is following programming to becoming a an individual again and 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 its trajectory is just beautifully beautifully uh, mapped out for me it starts with the you know it's it's quite funny when he shoots the the guy in the nuts through the dress yeah she runs up to him it plays on multiple levels it's not only funny but it also speaks to how like he is he is totally disconnected it's like madam you have suffered an emotional shock i will contact yeah he doesn't he doesn't have any emotion whatsoever he's Mm. on programming by the end of the movie he's like clarence i think he says i'm not here to arrest you anymore Mm. He's making his own choices. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Go Robo. <laughs> the shoot, the, the, the shooting in the dick scene, just as a, as a little kind of sidebar. Yeah. Um, I think that sequence in a film that is very well shot, possibly kind of functionally well shot. There's a couple of shots in there, which are proper beautiful. One is the, 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 the shot of Robocop driving out to his first thing with the sunset coming through the windscreen yeah. shot from slightly behind him and then the the sequence where he does shoot the guy in the dick the big wide shot you've got that big shadow of him is it lit from his uh the headlights of his car and he's got this massive silhouette and the huge like the you've got the big um uh billboard and it's because the, the films it's on a 185 isn't it it's, it's mm-hmm. not a it's mm. not a, a, a it's just a american widescreen yeah super yeah. wide yeah but that's one of those shots where it has such kind of width to it, and she comes rushing across to to, to meet him on the right hand side of the frame. I, don't, I just think it's that's great. one of the most conspicuously beautifully shot sequences. <laughs> why is it? I think I do know the answer. But why is it that when Bob Morton gets cashed out, do I feel the loss? Uh, like I, I feel genuinely bad for him, even though. I, I've already said I think he's as bad as Dick Jones. Oh, uh, he's, yeah, he's obviously a scumbag. Mm. But Miguel Ferrer's just like so fucking good. He's, he's so, so charismatic. He's he's just, could, he's, it could be those his, brutal leg squibs, those eighties diehard mm. leg squibs that just look so painful. As despicable as he is, you don't want to see yeah. a, a guy shot in the uh, kneecaps, do you? Miguel Ferrer plays uh, a reprehensible prick in <laughs> Twin Peaks as well. Like he turns up and he's like, he's high road in, you know, Kyle MacLachlan, who's the most lovable character. So you hate him because he's just an antagonist. He's just a, it's a jerk off. And he has this incredible scene in Twin Peaks where he just, he starts talking about, um, the love that he has for all beings in the universe, <laughs> but he does it in the exact same tone of voice. And he says, I think he just says like, uh, uh, and I have love for you, Agent Cooper. <laughs> I don't know. He's just great. Some people are just likably despicable and he falls into that. Yes. Category. Yeah. He's fun. Like he's fun to watch. He is. I mean, um, you know, another deep cut, but he, he basically saves blank check, uh, the movie. <laughs> uh, he is the villain in that who has lost the said check. 
Um, yeah. but he is absolutely the person that holds the core to that onion massively. So <gasps> it's not Agent Cooper. Sorry. It's Sheriff Truman that he's a dick. Ah, uh, this is why we need Patrick because he would have corrected I just, you. I just wanted to make sure because I know that a lot of people really like Twin Peaks. And I just mm, like, yes. I've seen it. I'm not just saying it. I have seen it. I know. And I don't want my DMs flooded with, you know, <laughs> Twin Peaks geeks. The other person as well is Kurtwood Smith. Yeah, it, it's amazing to see him. Like, I'd seen him in this before that 70s show, so it was working in reverse for me. It's like, that's the bad guy from Robocop. He's Eric Foreman's dad. So it was weird. For me, I'd seen him. I mean, this is, a, I, I don't know what I'm doing watching to die for before I watched Robocop, <laughs> but I, he's, he's the genteel dad to Nicole Kidman in To Die For, who then hires uh, an assassin to kill her at the end, uh, which is ah. absolutely on point for Kurtwood Smith. He's great in this because a, a pretty, not thankless role, but could easily just be forgettable. I like it when he chats up the woman in the, uh, oh, in the office yeah. so they can fit me in. Uh, <laughs> I, I think... The, the the fact that he's named and pictured in the first few minutes really helps. They set him up as an antagonist really quickly. And mm. you have to do that. Like that. The first thing that came to mind was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because that was one of the best villains we've talked about. And right from the outset, you've got the sheriff and they do it the same thing here. And they make him totally despicable right from the beginning. And then they double down and triple down and quadruple down until he gets, you know, stabbed in the jugular. And it's very, very rewarding at the end yeah. to see him go down. The other reason why I think he's memorable is because he's totally playing against our type of, of villain that we would expect. You know, he's not particularly imposing. It's a bit like Bond, isn't it? That they're not, they're not usually like Ed 209 is the, the big bad and, and Bodiker is the, uh, he's almost Bond villain-esque because he's not physically threatening really. He gets thrown through all those windows. You know, he's not going to take Robocop. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not making myself clear. I don't want to fuck with you, Sam. But I got the connection. I got the sales organization. I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid wop ass that you'll shit snow for a year. Frankie, blow this cocksucker's head off. Ooh, guns, guns, guns. Come on, Sal. Stigers are playing. Tonight. I never miss a game. If another man stuck his fingers in your wine galley, what would you do? Well, I would, uh, in, a, in an alpha way, I would drink it. <laughs> yeah, that guy while does look, it. While looking him dead in the eye. Yeah, while looking him dead in the eye. That's what he does. It's like, that doesn't bother me at all. I th I'm not sure I'd be able to do that. No. Well, yeah. I'd be like, well, you know, you're having a go at me and you're wearing a scarf, a neck scarf, you, <laughs> you silly little bodinger. <laughs> there's like a, uh, there's a really chilling, like casual confidence to Kurtwood Smith as bodinger that, mm. that, makes him more terrifying because he seems mostly like he's doing all of these horrible things while being completely comfortable with every aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, there's no kind of raging. It's not like he's a, uh, you know, it's not like he's acting on out of some sort of like, um, like he's got faulty wiring, like he's fucked up. Like no. he's, you know, well, he acts out of greed too. He just wants the, yeah. the power and the money and yeah. kind of like Dick Jones. He's, he's just very calculated. And does not uh, really consider the collateral damage. Is just thinking about, well, I want to. We know his motivation. He's waiting for the old guy to to yeah. bite it, and then he'll be top dog. That's it. Um, yeah. In a, in a strange way, it surprises me that he hasn't like you know 
poisoned the old man. I wouldn't put it mm. past him, but he feels like it feels like in business he's he's just he's just biding his time before he becomes big cheese. But isn't that like, that's that's what they say that you know the the way to to get ahead in business you don't want to you don't want to kill the competition. What you need to do is you need to make sure that they make such an egregious error that they are shown as being incompetent, out of touch, useless, and then you, you step usurp in. the, yeah. the you usurp the throne that way. You have to demoralize the the the, the top dog. You've run out. You now got me thinking. So you suggesting that the Ed Two O Nine series is purposely shite. In order to then make the old man vote of no confidence, meet Joe yeah. Blackstyle against Anthony Hopkins, another deep cut, and then Dick <laughs> Jones becomes head of OCP. I don't think so purely because I don't think that that motivation works because it exposes the, the Ed 209, the failure of that exposes Dick Jones to the, mm. um, to uh uh what's his name, Bob Morton's plan. Mm. So he's slipped up. That's why he's so angry which is that he realizes that he's fucked up i guess which you know which because because um like we're saying that uh Bodica is like very comfortable with what he's doing whereas uh dick jones does rage against people he does act out and he fails and he's you know and he's he's having to do more kind of scheming and manipulating he's very confessional as well as dick hmm. um he does like telling <laughs> people exactly, yeah. what he has done i tell you what though um Nice little bit of, uh, you know, for the, for the trivia heads. Ronnie Cox loves delivering a performance, uh, via, a, via, you know, a pre-recorded message. I'm he thinking does. Total Recall. Yeah. Yeah. Go Hagen, you bastard. And sometimes he's in a room like in Deep Blue Sea and he never says a word. Sometimes he just sits there. I, I have to think that they, he, you know, I have a little theory on that that I never mentioned in our Deep Blue episode, Deep Blue Sea episode. Do, do we think that Ronnie Cox suffers from dementia? <laughs> yeah, possibly in in deep blue sea which is why he's got a soft never spot explained for the, never explained <laughs> regardless if you want to see a tremendous ronnie cox performance just watch him sat at a table in yeah. deep blue sea i just think it's as simple as having a, an entire scene cut yeah where he, they just chopped all his lines out because they were unnecessary and nobody explained it or rennie harlan is just like you know what we haven't seen in a while cox bring him in or Rennie fell out with Cox and thought, well, I'm just going to leave him in the scene, but take all his lines out. Oh, uh, you could, naughty, naughty Harlan. Yeah, that could have happened. Uh, chat about Lewis a little while we're doing secondary characters. Yes. Is this your, isn't it, isn't it quite refreshing in the eighties to have a platonic relationship and not have them kiss in the end? <laughs> well, there's some gender neutral <laughs> stuff he talks about on the commentary. He said he, it didn't really come across in Robocop. He's got the topless, uh, female cop in the in the shower it registered it registered in my eyes last night man i'll say that (laughs) well the nudity registers but is there is there a deeper a deeper meaning behind it he was going for a um an equal opportunities in the workplace thing here and he did it later in starship troopers because he didn't feel like it came across well here so it's done again he doubled he doubled down in starship troopers i mean there's an entire scene and i and i think we see a little bit of casper's schlong we see all sorts yeah um, that's, Top of that, the dick. <laughs> that's worth a rewind. Um, not just for that scene, but you know, for the, for the Verhoeven of it all. Uh, so this one was really interesting. I, I really liked the, the Lewis character. I kind of wanted to be a cop in old Detroit and those violent as it is. I kind of want to go and get coffee with her and, you know, go and take out a gang of, 
of guys. Oh, I'm not sure, Matt. I think I'll be taking your name badge off the off the lock of. Yeah, quick. yeah, yeah. It, you don't last long, dear. But I mean, she. I like her introduction. Uh, they said the the original thought was to for her to take her helmet off and sh- shake down some long golden locks, and then they thought that's just uh, totally. It's too stereotypical. We're going to go short hair. And uh, that's really undercutting your point as well, isn't it? It does. If you have to go for like, yeah, if if you take the helmet off and you've got the most generic impl- uh, implication of, you know, beauty standards of the, the flowing lock. Well, he disguises how pretty she is because she's, you know, she is very beautiful. If you look at the, the De Palma films, I always think of Carrie and uh, Dress to Kill and Blowout as being the three that my, my go-to Nancy Allen's as, as well as this one, but she looks like a different person with the, you know, chewing the gum and uh, there's some nice little beats there with the, with the gum. Um, I just found it very uh, interesting that that platonic relationship between them, that there is that moment where she's helping him with the targeting system that you could argue is the, that's the closest they get physically, but Robocop and Murphy via, you know, Robocop, doesn't see anyone sexually and and we talked about it in cyborg a bit where he's tempted with shakira uh um she goes topless on that beach and he he doesn't act on it because he's grieving for this family that he's lost (laughs) if um, we have then we have the run (laughs) and then we have the the worst (laughs) naked run in in film history Uh, and the best is in jaws we figured that one out on the drink along but um Mm. this one if, if he if he's sexual in, in any way, it would, first of all, it would be like, um, peculiar in a Cronenbergian kind of way that we do not need here. Mm. And, and secondly, it would just undercut the grief that he has for the, the family that he's, that he's lost. So absolutely. It is the least sexy Verhoeven film you're ever going to see. <laughs> and rightly I mean, so. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but in a way, you're absolutely right. Cause it, movies can sometimes codify your thinking. And for the longest time, I did think that if you are a hero in any type of story, you will get the girl. I'm thinking about Jamie's, you know, in his trio. The running man is the, we've not done the running man, but one of the, one of the running jokes that me and Devlin have is just how little Arnie thinks of Maria Conchito Alonso in that movie. Yet by the end, he kidnaps, bullies, cajoles. Uh, gets her involved in a death game, uh, ruins her career, smashes up her apartment, uh, and then uh, spends the entire of the game berating her for being shit at it. And then at the end, this ain't no game. Yeah. I think it's a contractual thing. He, he wants to get the girl at the end. The same thing happens in Commando with, with Ray Dawn Chong. I mean, he's not particularly nice to her. He gets her involved in, in all of this nonsense by basically kidnapping her. Yeah. It is a, partnership that you know it's very very quickly done I, I like the fact that lois kind of calls him out as well on the old tj laser stuff like you know uh peter wellers yeah you saying like uh your know, role models are good for a boy and then uh it's like i got a kick out of it it's like ah there you go that's the there's one bit where he says uh, i usually drive when i'm breaking in a new partner which you could argue has a sexual element to it but i don't choose to read it that way a dirty mind does yeah. <laughs> um but yeah there's that that moment where he, he asserts himself without being a prick which i like he's not uh walked over or emasculated by lewis uh, and there's there's a very difficult balance for the modern man i think and and many fail because you still you still got to hold a certain amount of masculinity but you can't be 
you know, if, if you walked over too much, I don't, I don't feel like women like that either. I think that this is a, he, he really nails that tone of, of asserting himself without being the dick. Mm-hmm. He's also uh, not a Boy Scout as well. Like it, right. it's a real balance that we don't get much. I mean, again, for an assignment for an actor, you know, RoboCop, you are going to be in the suit for most of the time, and you are going to be covered by the suit most of the time, and you're going to get about what five minutes of screen time as Murphy. Even when he's revealed at the end, it's a bizarre. It's like he's he's performing through that makeup even though we we see it we talked about how his yeah. head is kind of the skin is kind of stretched quite oddly and i do i do think it's you know it's a masterstroke of casting because he's he's got those big blue eyes mm. and it's like an empathy machine so even yeah. though we don't really spend a great deal of time with him when he's getting you know we keep going back to that crucifixion sequence when he's getting shot up, I feel everything. It's not just because it's, you know, viscerally dis- yeah. disgusting to watch, but he looks so pitiful. It's this idea that Murphy's in there and those little details. That One of my favorites is the way he drives. If you watch when the car pulls out of the precinct, the sparks hit because he's driving with, with urgency and determination. And then later... I when... would say recklessly, but yes, I know <laughs> what you mean. And later when Murphy peels out of there, he does the same thing. And it's like, he's in there. He's still, he's, he drives the same. It's him. It reminds me of, again, it's, this is probably like a little bit of hand holding, but it's the importance of the music. So that musical cue, if you missed the spinny gun, when Lois sees the spinny gun, she's immediately like, yeah, that's Murphy. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and, and it happens a couple of times, but my, I get like little tingles across my spine when I hear that. The, well, the, the other layer to that is that his kid loves that show. So th- there's, it's yeah. tying back into the, the family that he's lost again. And that, tra- that tragedy underlines it all. One of my favorite shots, by the way, is that really bizarre one in during the, not really a dream sequence. It's where his life's flashing before his eyes on the table. And there's that really odd frame rate shot, um, pulling away from his, uh, um, wife and child waving to him in this exaggerated, dreamy way. Uh, and it ties back in. Should we talk about some of the, you know, we've been waxing his exterior Kevlar suit, um, <laughs> for some time now. A couple of bum moments in Robocop. One, um, you know, there aren't as, <laughs> as many strong or even just kind of like good depictions of female characters apart from Lois. And you would argue maybe, um, Dick Jones's secretary who does scorn at Bodiger, but he is, she is unfortunately having to be hit on. His actual wife, Trivia, that they got married. Oh, oh Trivia Award. Oh, yeah. they got a award. There you go. They got married, did they? Yeah, so it's okay if he's mean to her in the film because it's really his wife. Well, there you go. She did call him back. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. She fitted him in. But Danielle did say that she, she found the Lois getting distracted by Joe Cox's Willie, she found that to be really quite undercut him, which I didn't. But obviously, I'm watching it going, well, yeah, I would also probably look. Reverse the genders there, and it's boobs. Yeah, you could argue that, couldn't you? You could say that he's just subverting that. She was like on Lois's side, kicking ass, and then she's like, well, now she's just neglected a partner because she couldn't resist a little lick. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's Eve and the apple. Who knows? It's kind um, of a, but a yeah. smart move on his part. Can we not give him some oh, credit for getting out of that situation? I, I also feel like that's maybe his go-to thing. That's what he does whenever he's in a standoff with a with a cop. But... Or, or when he's not laughing, uh, like a hyena, yeah. 
That's right. You have to have one guy in the gang, don't you, that does a high-pitched laugh constantly, undermining everything. He's another bum note for me. I found mm. him to be so cartoonish. If you think about how he how he delivers, does it hurt? He goes, does it hurt? Does it hurt? If you deliver that differently, mm. I think you've got a really nasty moment there, potentially. But the way he delivers that, it, it becomes too comedic for me. He, do, he does bother me a bit. It's also a little uncomfortable on the racial stereotyping front in that we've got uh he's laughing uproariously all the time and he gets his dick out which is you know i think they tried to cover a lot of bases didn't they that that they had uh, paul mccrane as the as the redhead and then they had the um uh robert palmer twin peaks as you know I guess he's kind of Italian looking. I don't really know. <laughs> um, Ray Wise, yeah. And then you've got, uh, there's, there's an Asian, um, right, uh, gang member. So, um, I do know that, um, I think it was, again, Michael Miner said that the, the way that they represented the gang, uh, was that he said, this is like, this is like the, um, giving the audience their curly fries or their onion rings. Mm. You know, this is like the play this one to the cheap seats. Right. Yeah, they don't go into any depth, but you, you do get the sense that, uh, that, that the gang isn't specific to a certain, um, race, which is good. Which is, which is something they did a lot of, I, I think in the eighties, there was, there was quite a bit of that, of, of trying not to, um, trying to avoid falling into traps. I think certainly filmmakers like these guys who are quite, um, they're obviously very thoughtful. They, mm. they understood the implications of what they may or may not be doing when they're, when they're representing something on screen. So they probably took pains to try and make sure that it didn't feel like it was um, uh, uh, targeting any specific group, yeah. pushing any kind of like a different kind of agenda, I guess, like, because it would distract from the main message of the film. It's loaded, isn't it? If you make it too specific to anything, you, all of a sudden you've got a message like a fatal attraction or whatever we were talking about with uh, Japanic or, you know, whatever was going on at the yes. time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like a, a predator too. Where, you've got the, where you the go with the King Willie. Yeah. Yeah. You just go super cartoony, but um, mm. yeah. So I, I think the only way you can go with it is to make it non-specific, but that his representation was of all of them probably the most racially coded i yeah i'd agree uh could we go back to verhoven for a second there was some cool visual storytelling i thought that stems from that idea we talked about with john woo a little bit where a foreign filmmaker is making something very visual because you kind of wonder how much of the the language and the dialogue they they uh, not understand but are, are completely aware of um, yeah yeah so he kind of uh, I, I felt like he works works with the images images very well. One of my favorite pieces was when the the removal of Fredrickson's name uh, from the locker, yes, and just putting Murphy yeah. on there. That's an example of something we talk about a lot. Where if you remove the sound, you understand exactly what's what's happening within that scene. So I wondered about. Uh, I, I know Paul Verhoeven is obviously uh, fluent, but he did talk about not understanding some of the lines of, of Ed Newmyer's. Uh, dialogue and ed newmeyer said just trust me this is a it's a good line they'll get it it's funny and verhoven kind of yeah. went with it but there's this vein running through it that's um that's again a very visual film although perhaps not as kinetic as as some of the other work we've seen from mctiernan i do feel it's very well composed but it tends to be yeah. static 
did you notice how kind of static some of the set pieces were yeah it's true it's um it your um essay as well especially on mctin and i think it was the diehard essay that you wrote about the um the fluidity of his camera and, and motivated by emotion rather than ca- character movement yeah and and you know that you can cut in and out of a moving camera if you know what you're doing if you can visualize it properly and th- this does feel a lot more um staged it doesn't look bad i don't think they got that memo i think yanderbont knows about that and i think mctiernan through who was the dop on uh predator McAlpine, McAlpine, uh, McAlpine. Yeah. yeah, I think they they got that memo, but RoboCop is slightly old fashioned in a, in a sense. It still works for me because I love that how nicely composed it is. But the scene that always mm. springs to mind with that stuff is when he goes into the drug warehouse fa- factory. Yeah, the warehouse, and he's just it's just static shot of him firing, even though he's doing those cool no look no look shots yeah. and guys are falling over uh, balconies and things like galley's favorite where the yeah. guy falls into the box yes my favorite it's a delayed delayed box backing <laughs> into which is yeah. very fun There's, yeah it's lacking but, yeah, in we could have been zooming we could have been zooming around there we could have been on a jib arm we could have had tracks and we could have had you know some some great angles that you could find in a set like that and they they were i think you know they wanted to get the coverage the the other thing as well that you know I I I do agree with you, Matt. Um, I do think the action is probably the weakest element of the movie for the you know, which is ironic because I think I saw RoboCop categorized as a action superhero film on a recent. Uh, I think it was I can't remember if it was Variety or one of those major publications just released. You know, it, done on purpose to make people very angry. They did like a, a hundred, hundred best superhero movies and Robocop was in it. And yeah. I do not class this as a superhero movie, but I do think that the action is probably the weakest element. And, and I don't think Verhoeven's ever been good at action, to be honest with you. Like Total Recall, for all the fun of Total Recall, the best stuff is just Arnie losing his shit because he's not Quaid. You know, the, the action mm. is quite, like you say, it's quite, it's on rails to me boxed in it doesn't harm the movie yeah. be- mm. and, uh, but i do think if we want to be charitable to to verhoven and the dop it might also be the limitations of the suit what i was going to say was that without the iconography of, of robocop and the strength of the suit and what's actually going on uh you'd really be struggling but the the, the camera work isn't dynamic but i kind of i find it acceptable because yeah. what's going on like when he when he uh the, the paul mccrane scene at the uh, the petrol pumps with the college boy mm. and all that stuff, the the size of the explosion, the scale of what's going on within the shots are enough to make it interesting and still be an effective action film. But um, just imagine it in the hands of like, Yanderbont shooting it or McTiernan directing it. We'd probably have something that, that would be elevated even further. That reminds me, quick question, uh, Dr. Romano himself. Yeah. What's, what's the worst way to go out? Toxic waste or helicopter landing on your head? I'd, prefer the helicopter or partial helicopter on 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 my head because i think it'd be more, more instantaneous there's a lot of struggling around here in pain it's a prolonged drawn out sequence the toxic waste is is one of one of the worst deaths i could imagine yeah 
to to be even to the to point where his of. friend rejects him completely. Get away from me, man! Don't touch me, man! <laughs> you know, at that point in the movie, the movie has gone kind of cartoon. It has there is a big barrel of toxic. Well, it's, it's a comic book film, isn't it? Before I know that the the film mm. came before the comic, but this feels more like a comic book film than almost anything else I've ever seen. Matt, were you going to say that Devil's Advocate? You can t- you can actually kind of see why somebody might be tempted to categorize this as a superhero film oh because you're going to disagree with me i i don't know i'm not i'm not saying that i would Mm. i'm also not saying that it's the stupidest idea i've ever heard in terms of if you wanted to create an origin story for a superhero is usually somebody who's gone through like uh, uh oftentimes the origin of a superhero's powers is a traumatic event that changes them into something else they struggle with the uh the new powers they've gained versus the humanity they've lost because of that and then they have to find a new way to relate to the world and commit themselves to making it a better place oh, like, beautifully it's put not yeah impossible to see where they were getting at although i do agree that they were probably just trying to get some clicks and he can fly in robocop 3 so you know you, you put yep. those two things together and you've got yourself a superhero I I thought we were of the opinion that we just I know that there are lovers of RoboCop 2 including on this podcast but <laughs> I thought we were suggesting that the shark had jumped or the jetpack had been turned on and we weren't counting them. I think RoboCop 2 is more of the same. It's a bit like Jaws 2 in that sense that you you want to see more because you enjoyed it so much. But yeah, I mean I said it before, didn't I? Like that you don't always know what what's best for you. It's it's not it's not giving you your greens. It's it's impossible to maintain the thesis of what's going on in this film, which is the thing that makes it kind of so interesting. What you're really just doing is you are perpetuating a really great character design and an aesthetic. The fact that within three years of this, Robocop is clumping down, <laughs> clumping down the aisle at some fucking deep south arena to help Sting reclaim the wcw title absolutely <laughs> means that you know the, that's when it's like nah, that i i do think that that's what what is quite cool is that the the writers i think understood to an extent that this was always going to happen that their ideas would be co-opted and undercut probably they didn't realize that it was going to be franchised quite so heavily but i think there's a cynicism that is baked into this idea that we're still creating a product of course you want to you know you need you've got something to say and you're going to say what you can within it but at the end of the day, like, you don't own shit. Hollywood owns your ideas. The other idea as well, Devlin, in the sequels that that then me- makes the original, not that this makes it worse, because, of course, you can always just go and watch the original, is that mm. Robocop is quite a destructive cop. Um, yes. Not, you know, he doesn't dish out justice in an efficient way. When he mm. takes out the guy in the shop, he destroys the shop. When he takes yeah. out um, Dr. Romano, the petrol station <laughs> blew up. So, yeah. you know, so as far as like being an effective yeah. lawman who will keep new, you know, Delta City tidy, I'm not sure he's your guy. Well, and that's, that's always, again, like it's in the thesis. Like I don't believe that they really think that cops are a force for good. I don't think that they are as blunt to say that they do believe that they are like, you know, all evil and like you said the, the the chief is a kind of a sympathetic character lewis is a sympathetic character uh, uh but as overall i mean to see the police as a kind of neutral force for keeping the law of the land is kind of very naive when really law enforcement always is on the side of whoever has the most power and whoever deploys them 
so i think that um the fact that the further you go on robocop does become a hero going out and like solving problems it's it's inverting the basics of of what the creation of the guy he was supposed to be like a frankenstein's monster you know he's like um and and instead like you say he gets a jetpack and he solves everyone's problems and he's probably helping kittens out of trees i don't know I didn't, Does, didn't he start talking about you know drugs are bad jenny eat something yeah exactly. like, he was doing like yeah. pu- public service announcements and stuff same thing happened to the terminator even before terminator 2 already was going around being like i'll be back it's like wait a yeah. minute you were the murderous uh <laughs> cyborg yeah. that came back to destroy us all but yeah. it's um it's more divorced from it's more divorced from a social or a political standpoint yes so, like yes. the terminator doesn't have to stand for anything whereas robocop kind of eventually does come to stand for something and yeah. it's like you know what if he becomes like a uh what if he becomes a symbol for you know miserable like cops everywhere what if he becomes the new mayor and then or, and then they can manipulate him uh as, as as this face you know at the forefront of everything but he has pulling his strings, he has you know? programming yeah he literally has yeah. programming he can literally be told what to do and who to serve speaking of the programming a bit like superman always good to have that one thing prime directive number four you know, again, keeps the stakes where they need to be. This indestructible robot. Oh, you're talking about kryptonite. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, again, it's a nice, smart way of being respectful to your, your creature, your hero, but also giving him the one thing that he cannot do. But then he outsmarts it, you know, and I love the yeah. fact, I think this is the reason why the old man gets, gets a pass in this one. Cause he's like, Wink, wink, old man. I need him to not be a senior OCP executive. Dick, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. Right, before we get to our final thoughts, though, um, can someone explain to me why Dick Jones went all, you know, Mr. Elastic when he fell out? Was that just like a rushed effect? As far as I can see, there was an admission by uh, the model maker. So that is a model of Dick Jones. So unlike Die Hard, where that is an actor falling off a very high platform in a stage uh, against a blue screen, this is a model that they made. Uh, the model was in proportion, but they did not have a big enough stage to be able to put the camera as far away as they'd want. So they had to use a far wider lens than they expected. And the, the well, distortion it it. Yeah. was so much yeah. The distortion was so much worse because it was such a small, it, the, the model was perhaps only eight, 10 inches tall. So, uh, and, and is very, very close to the lens. So what that means is that you get far worse distortion than you would get, in, you know, versus a person who's six, five foot something or six foot. So, uh, the, the arms were, were obviously the closest thing to the lens. So yeah. as you can see, here, I put my, for, the, for those at home, I have placed my hands right next to my lens and my face to the back and my hands, as He's you got can Dick see, Jones are hands. enormous. Yeah. If you look at the model itself, cause there's another little picture of, of the model just being held. It looks good. And it looks fine. Everything's in proportion. So it's just the, the lens ah. that warped it. You know what I would have done? Uh, if, if you can do the, would I change something about Robocop? I'd have just like a dummy fall on the Ed 209 legs. Ah. That's poetry in motion. And it's right down there. It's right beneath. It works. So you get like a, a little dummy, fill it with guts and stuff. And then like the color of Night Lady. Yes. Yeah. 
maybe have some media types out there taking pictures so as it's going to go in the newspaper the next yeah. day. Mm. I think we've just improved RoboCop. I think we like did. Yeah. An inch. Mm. Right then. Um, I believe uh, on our way to the steel mill, we must stop off at the store that is also called Critics Corner. I'd buy that. We haven't even said it once in this episode, <laughs> and I will not say it. Oh, I'm quite proud of us. But... Yeah. yeah, I teased it. I said I would not, but you don't know what I was going to say after. <laughs> so, Matt, will you tell us about um, what the critics thought at the time? I have read some of them, and it was interesting. I'll, I'll give you that. Well, sadly, there's no Pauline Kale this week. Um, one amateur YouTube commenter noted that the line... An art house film masquerading as an action film was the best description of Robocop they'd ever heard. And a line so eloquent and insightful, it wasn't surprising it came from neither Siskel nor Ebert. Uh, Siskel, uh, his self-serving failed attempts at humor grated on me again this week. Although he, <laughs> he did like the film. Sorry, I'm speaking ill of the dead. Although he liked the film, he's a, a bit of a contradiction. Uh, he said it was violent and, and well made like the Mad Max movies, but even better. He found it wonderfully funny, inventive, and agreeably violent as a piece of science fiction cinema. Um, he, he felt like science fiction films always have a present that looks like the future, only worse. Uh, and he felt like this was somehow different, but I felt like that is Robocop, isn't it? It, it, it's the future yeah. only, it's the present only worse. So I think he's barking up the wrong tree there. But he, he was positive. Um, in reference to the, the Murphy plot line, he said his story is kind of sort of sad. Uh, and I felt like <laughs> that was just elementary. I, I don't really understand. If, if the review is for primary school kids, then maybe, but um, my, my English teacher, Mr. Burton would have rejected that and made him rewrite that. Um, he felt like it was a bit like the fly, half creature, half man. I really don't understand what he was going on about, but perhaps of that time, Fly was 86, this is 87, perhaps it's just in his consciousness. Uh, Ebert made a bit more sense. Uh, he, he said he liked Mad Max more than Robocop, um, which I, I disagreed with, but uh, he called Robocop a fun movie and Verhoeven a good director, and he enjoyed it. He was howling in the theatre during the Ed 209 malfunction. Um I think uh, he, he was a bit better in his 87 written piece. Of course uh, he was. He said... <laughs> a little uh, bit of distance. <laughs> well, no, it was still the oh, summer. No, is, it was the summer is, of 87. Yeah, so the, this was still a, yeah. of the time. He said uh, one of the film's best qualities is that we don't know where it's going. And I think he, he meant that more tonally. He called Verhoeven a gifted Dutch filmmaker. Uh, there's only two things I hate in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's <laughs> cultures and the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he ended, uh, he said that there was a bizarre equa equation to the furor at the time surrounding Bernard Goetz, uh, who was an American vigilante who rose to national fame uh, when he shot four African American males on a New York subway train after they allegedly tried to, to rob him. He felt like the, uh, the public backing Robocop uh, as some kind of vigilante owed something to that cult, that, that cultural thing that was happening at the time, which I knew nothing about. Uh, he ended very strongly with most thriller and special effects movies come right off the assembly line. Uh, you can call out every development in advance and usually be right. But Robocop is a thriller with a difference. 
So well done, Rog. I agree with Siskel. It, it did make me make me sad. Um, so <laughs> it's, I, I think it's true, wrong, but, but as great as this, can he not offer a slightly better? His story's sort of kind of sad. I mean, that's not quite enough for the preeminent one of the two preeminent yeah. critics of the time in America, but. There you go. Yeah, I didn't read his Jurassic Park movie, but I bet it was like <laughs> kind of the scary. dinosaurs were kind. Yeah. Dinosaurs are kind of big. Kind <laughs> of <laughs> big. That's worse. Yeah. Um, right. Well, should we do very very quickly some favorite scenes, and mm. then we shall wrap this one up. Um, so, Devlin, any any? Uh, well, we've talked extensively again about the crucifixion slash Jesus scene. Have you got any favorite scenes for RoboCop in particular? Apologies again to Dutch listeners. I love the, what we talked about before the, 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 the gradual reveal of Robocop. Um, I love that there is the shot through the frosted glass introduces you to, or, or rather hammers into the audience's head, the Robocop foot stomp sound. Yeah. Which is iconic. Robocop's now. Walking instantly recognizable. Doesn't sound like, yeah, it doesn't sound like anything else. Oh, it does sound a bit like the power loader in aliens slightly. But, uh, oh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, you can tell it's Robocop. There is a difference. But you've got a hard on for camera. <laughs> it's like, um, it's, it's the, it's the thud. You, you hear the weight in it and it really sells that this is like, it sells the weight of the suit. And I think it does so in a, mm. in a really, like, it's, it's a simple way of doing it. And it's so effective. And it, it just goes, it goes to show that this is people who understood the effect of what they were doing on an audience what is this shit well uh you know special mention to the sound i mean academy award winning um so it did win did win best sound okay um and and yeah i totally agree with you devlin because uh, as well as peter weller's um incredible mime performance under the suit to emote that sound really sells it sells the the character and same with yeah. the, the ad 209 stuff which obviously makes him kind of cute and a little bit frustrated like a you know a teenager that's been sent to bed without, yeah. without his supper um yeah it's all it's all, all it's all there though isn't it great but, stop motion but yeah. even the sound of his gun oh well that leads on to mine that that leads on to uh the shooting range scene which is one of my favorites um they've all got their you know, little puny Walthers and, and whatever else they're firing and, and whatever Lois, uh, Lewis is using. But, and, and they hear this kind of machine gun fire and that sound I'd never heard before. And the idea of having a machine gun in a, in a pistol was uh, like the first time I'd ever seen anything like, like that. So that made it futuristic and kind of interesting. Uh, and that, um, yeah, I always, I always remember that scene as, as soon as he's twirling it around doing his cowboy TJ laser stuff, that all hooks in really well but um i I enjoy that scene uh as an honorable mention i've got um all all the stuff at the end with the the third act face where where he's looking at himself in the mirror Mm. and he's he says the line i can feel them but i can't remember them leave leave me alone it's just heartbreaking and his the idea that his wife has started again with someone new and it's a true tragedy Uh, the makeup work on him there when he removes his, his helmet i just totally buy it and, uh, yeah, he, he, what's really sad is that he, he can never be a lover again. Like that scene that it can't be sexual and he can never be a husband and he can never be a dad and he can never be a lover. He's been castrated and it all, it all hooks in. And, and so as, as silly as it gets and as satirical as it gets, that the tragedy underpinning it is, is one of the keys for me. It's really good to see you again, Murphy. Murphy had a wife and son. What happened to them? 
Well, after the funeral, she moved away. Where did they go? She thought you were dead. She started over again. I can feel them. But I can't remember them. Leave me alone. Do you have a favorite, Gary? Um, well, I'll go for, because we haven't, uh, we didn't really focus on it too much just because, um, yeah, it's been, been discussed to death, but I'm going to talk about it more in its functionality. It's all the TV advert stuff. It's about the world building. So anytime it comes up, it comes up in the right moment. So that element I think is just splendid because I, I understand the world. I understand where we are and, and also it's layered with, you know, satire and humor and the other, say scene but just the the way that verhoven uses pov when we're in robocops you know in the early gestation when he's you know again lots of information being told to us playback he records he's got a targeting system um so all that stuff is just wonderfully delved out so yep they are my favorite they're not scenes yeah but they're they're things i like that they're all kind of watching the same daft show they all think that benny yeah. Hill show is the pinnacle of comedy but it, it kind of links everyone in in delta city together as they're all kind of under this it's not really like brainwashing but they're all kind of feeling the same thing they're all on the same wavelength because they all find the exact same yeah. things funny and they've all lowest common denominator escapism and they're all tied yeah. through that it's like the running man mm. everyone yes. watches it <laughs> it's about control people so next time you want to watch I don't know, X Factor. Does that still run? Just think about it as control. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, um, final thoughts. We'll keep it brief. Uh, Devlin, I will start with you. Any final thoughts on RoboCop? And would you recommend it to our listeners? I would definitely recommend it to our listeners. And I think that um, if you've, uh, this is another film that if you've not seen it in a while, I know that it's its reputation is so burnished that you probably don't need another recommendation but if you can pick up the arrow blu-ray and especially listen to the two writers who i find extremely articulate and Mm. really like the more in-depth you can listen to them the better because you are this is not the case where somebody's accidentally written a good script or that you know they pulled something off these are guys who are very thoughtful and and Michael Miner especially is a really interesting dude to listen to and his thoughts on the film actually kind of bled into how I saw it which um I I really appreciated I thought he was very great and and I find that very surprising considering his um filmography is largely just um being credited on various RoboCop spin-offs as creator mm. and the only story credit I could see that he'd had is on Lawnmower uh, Lawnmower Man 2 Ooh. Ooh. AKA Job's War Beyond Cyberspace. Is that the one where the dog the puts the disc galley in the... ever saw? That's it's, it the is. One. Yep. It's also the one where they put a man in a wheelchair in a gyro. So uh, that's one of the dumbest films I've ever seen. Uh, I can only imagine that they took very little of his story and that they left him with a, a shell of a credit. But um, <laughs> they're both really interesting guys. And uh, I, I feel like I've only scratched the surface on how good that disc set is. Uh, and it's a film that does warrant and deserve that level of um, 
microscope kind of it's not a film that crumbles under too much microscope kind of poking at it it just reveals more and that's that's the sign of something great that you can you can kind of you can chip away at it and not undercut how great it is as a piece of work so uh yeah full recommendation for me and a special recommendation for that arab we race set well worth it uh, how about you, Gally? Yeah, I'm going to keep this one real simple. Uh, it's a it's a strong recommendation from me, as you said, Devlin. You didn't really need that to go back, but I do think um, it was fascinating to watch it with my partner who had never seen it, and it was good to see that after the early rockings of the title, that um, she fully went on the journey with. Uh, with Murphy and, and, and that whole like cheer moment at the end, you know, the conflicted feeling of being like, yay, robo death, but also Murphy has found himself again. Uh, that's just like wonderful stuff, isn't it? That's what makes you go back and watch the films again. Cause as I'm older now, some of the stuff that I used to cheer and laugh and enjoy, uh, when I watched it as a youth, I was not questioning, but it made me reflect on actually how I watch films just generally, which, um, don't say that about all films. Didn't say that about Cyborg. So there you go. Um, it's a strong recommendation. I'll take this opportunity now to thank uh, Jamie for picking it because it's, it's strange. I don't know how long we would have gone on the show without doing RoboCop because I think I put it in the, ah, it's been done to death, which I think it has, obviously. But but I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting it and I've thoroughly enjoyed discussing it. And in a way, it makes me look forward to maybe six months time or when it's on tv i'll watch it again and i'll think about this conversation and all the stuff that i've read about it and that's testament to the movie so yeah strong recommendation from me i'll i'll second that with uh jamie's recommendation as well really really happy to have a, a reason to go back and rewatch this it had been a while and it was a thoroughly enjoyable rewatch mm. so matt is it three for three <laughs> Or were you just sad about what happened to Murphy? I like it. Uh, it's a, some people say it's a perfect story, perfectly told, which I have thought at times. I've, I've fluctuated with it, but I really enjoyed revisiting this time. Uh, this idea of it being a violent dissection of American culture from a foreign eye, that Dutch perspective. Uh, the mm. cops' abuse of power and business executives unleashed and a, a broken country restoring order to a, a broken place. Um, it feels kind of sadly prescient, as we've touched on. Uh, it is a bit Agreed. wacky at times. Uh, it does look future retro, but it, it falls into that peculiar category that I really love of films that were made in the past, but set in the future, and now they've aged beyond their setting. So they exist in this weird cinematic parallel universe of, of sorts it's got weird stop motion effects we didn't really talk about phil tippett um if, if anyone hasn't seen mad god yet you should have a look at that um it's kind of his magnum opus of uh practical stop motion effects um on a personal note i i often think of robocop as a version of of like 2.0 of murphy and and when we experience tragedy in our lives, like not even tragedy, like it could be a, a breakup or we lose our job or suffer an illness or something that we don't entirely recover from. It could be anything. It's really applicable in that way. And, um, it, it, you know, the Robo Christ religious themes are there, but I don't ever really read it like that. I just see it 
as Murphy 2.0 and Robocop representing a phoenix rising from the ashes of something. And I think Verhoeven knew it. And that's why like the, the, the gruesome, gory death of Murphy is the way it is. It's got this sad, tragic thing where you can you never get back to where you were, but you're also at the same time moving forward and you've got this armor around, you know, and I, I think and these are all like allegorical things, but I think that, that it's oh, there. A deep map. <laughs> if you want to read into it, you can, you can do it. Like, and it's really cool for me that as a film I saw as an eight year old and read it as a, a little dummy, you know, playing with action force figures and, um, to actually reading into it as an adult in a, in a deeper way, um, is, is rare. Um, this, um, I still want that poster. It's on my list of, I want an American one sheet original. I want to frame it and I want to put it in my apartment, but I, I'm not allowed to put posters up in my apartment, so I can't do it. I'm going to have to do it in the next house, I guess. But, um, that's on my list of things to do. You know, um, it talks about, you know, what is a man or what more widely, what is, what is a human? And it's the soul that makes us not our physical body. It's about retaining our humanity amid all these dark things that we may be haunted by, regrets, mistakes of the past, unjust acts against us. But, you know, we have to persist in doing good and improving ourselves and building ourselves up again after these things Mm. happen to us. And the final line we talked about, nice shooting son, what's your name? Murphy. It's one of the best closing lines I've ever, ever heard. It's, it's a big car waxing from me mm, well said and you you know what you had you had me thinking about yeah being pulled apart and putting yourself back together right and being better for it <laughs> yes that is that is the allegory but also jesus is also there <laughs> um yeah so if um if our listeners want to listen to our recommendations along with all the other ones that have been uh thrown out there for robocop including from Siskel. Uh, where can they find Robocop, team? Well, I, I'd echo what Devlin was saying about the Arrow Blue. I got the, I paid about 50 quid for it. Because I'm in Korea, I had to get it from American eBay. But it, it was about 50 pounds, but it's the Steelbook edition, uh, the, the two-disc set. It's got a TV version. It's got the theatrical cut. It's got the director's cut, a bunch of commentaries, Lots of making ofs, all kinds of little Easter eggs and treats. So the best one is Paul Verhoeven being one of the guys dancing in the club. Um, Jost Vacano, the, the DOP panned over because Paul Verhoeven was showing everyone how he wanted them to dance. So that's one of the best little Easter eggs, <laughs> of finding his little cameo going mad in the club. Um, I, I didn't look into streaming because I, I paid a fortune for the, for the Blu-ray. So that's all I can say. Just get, get hold of the Arrow one. You can probably get it a lot cheaper than I did. It's, uh, uh, if you buy it in the UK, you can, it's, it's around between 10 and 15 pounds. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a shame. Yeah. No, but mine's a steel book though. Can you get the steel book that cheap? Uh, no, no, no. I got the, the standard plastic. Case yeah. I don't really go it. for steel books usually, but, but I, Robocop felt like you've got to have a steel book for Robocop, haven't you? But. Well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Full prosthesis. Yeah, it makes so, sense. There you go. Cool. Well, uh, Devlin, would you like to let our listeners now we are back and we've we've not made any sales over the summer because the shop was closed. <laughs> um, where can you didn't you didn't have to append in the summer? <laughs> where can our listeners find our <laughs> lovely merchandise? Uh, well, I believe that this 
uh, episode will, will, as they all are, be hosted at rewindmoviecast.com. I believe that this will be accompanied by uh, some more writing by our very own Matt Ridley. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's a scribe, you know. Uh, whose essays are always, always uh, fantastic. I really enjoy reading them. Uh, there you will find a tab on our website, which is shop. That will take you to the T-mill. That is devlindoesdrawing.tmill.com. There are Rewind Moviecast uh, t-shirts, various merchandise options. There is a slew of bizarre and, uh, I like to think, very nice shirts available uh, for a variety of films. Um, there may be something for this. I can't guarantee if not. Um, How about an Orion t-shirt down the line? Would that work? I think we could add an Orion t-shirt. We have a Canon Films t-shirt, so I think we could have a line of uh, uh, defunct studio shirts would be great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, keep an eye that, that Dimension we'll fell into that, that, that weird category of not wanting to deal with the uh, the Weinstein. So maybe Orion would fit instead. Yes, <laughs> but we'll see. I'm sure I'm sure we can pull off a Dimension. I'd love a Dimension well. one. Um, I'd buy it. A, it's Bob's, well, not exactly. Harvey's. So, we get away with it, maybe. Well, you put that on the back, don't you? Just that's what you put a little disclaimer on the it's back. Bob's Bob, not Harvey. Not Harvey. <laughs> yeah. Bob, not Harvey. Um, if you do want to follow me on Instagram at Devlin Does Drawing, I will be updating whenever I update the shop or my personal Etsy, which is also full of um, poster prints and various other sketches. Wow, fantastic! As you could tell, listeners, lots of links to get to where you need to get to, but like all things that are worth having, you've got to put in a little bit of effort. They're all hyperlinked right down in the description of this episode. Oh, so you don't even need to think. Just do it. There we go. Um, If you are a big fan of what we do and you enjoy the episode or the episodes that we've done prior, please like, subscribe, share, spread the gospel. More people that listen to the show, more people that can interact, the more listener requests we get, and then the more the show just evolves, becomes a thing, gets bigger. Um, as Dick Jones would say, who cares if it's good? Um, or he would say <laughs> if it works. So, by the way, on that one, um, I didn't mention it in the, in the main text of the episode, but uh, it just reminded me of, uh, probably Alan Sugar's thinking towards the Amstrad when that came out. <laughs> uh, the, the email phone. Yeah. She's probably just like, um, ah, oh, just, who gives a fuck? Just nick, nick the software from IBM. Who cares if it works? I'm just buy it. picturing Alan Sugar falling out of a window now with very long arms. Well, he's got very short arms, hasn't he? Yeah. I think just in general. So they'd probably be. They'd look normal. Age. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, um, yes, please, uh, <laughs> please like, share, subscribe. Um, we will say our goodbyes, but before we do, I'd like to say thank you again, Jamie, for, um, for picking Robocop. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Listeners, if you want a, a listener request episode, a special episode dedicated to your favorite movie, then, uh, then just send us an email, contact me via Twitter, however you want to do it. Let me know. Um, I'll just let you guys know that the latest request uh, it's coming from Michael in Shitterton in Dorset, which feels like, feels like it could be a gag. But then I googled it and Shitterton is a place. But I still think they're, they're having us on. Uh, and, and they have asked, uh, for us to discuss the last of the Mohicans. So there you go. Our oh. first Michael Mann somewhere down the line in 2022. Um, I will find you. Um, as they say, or as he I'm says. Gonna, I'm going to play some panpipes in a town centre. <laughs> Did that happen everywhere, or is that just like a northeast thing? <laughs> no, it, we discussed it in Dances with Wolves when we got really fascinated with the uh, with the native cultures. So yeah, looking forward to that one. Like little groups of lads in in ponchos playing panpipes in drizzly town centres, playing the theme tune to Last Alone. <laughs> yeah, or wearing or wearing beads. That happens. Um, yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll be doing that in the future. So thank you, Michael 
from Shitterton in Dorset. You're enjoying that way too much. Far too much. Um, right, shall we say our goodbyes then, team? I am a repeat offender. I repeat, I will offend again. It's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone. I love this guy. It's definitely in London. Sayonara, Robocop. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thank you very much for listening, guys. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.